I always, will always, always bet on myself. Like if I decide I want to do something, there is nothing in me that thinks I'm incapable of doing that thing. Like that's just always been my personality and I really hope that never changes. Hi, welcome to The Reveal Podcast, hosted by me, Denise Powell. Every season, I expect candid conversations with guests from all walks of life and no question being off limits. So make sure you come along for the journey as my guests reveal the highs, lows, and all that's in between. In this episode, I talk to Abraham Adeyemi of Creative Blue Balls, where he reveals about his journey to becoming an award-winning writer, director, and producer. He shares his heart for the next generation to achieve success faster, how living a life of excellence was instilled in him from a young age and overcoming his biggest lesson. Hi, everybody. Um, We are on episode three of... The Reveal Podcast. Can't believe we're here now, but the person who I'm going to introduce has been a longtime friend. I know I feel like I've said that quite a few times, but these people are genuinely amazing people who I feel like should get shine. Um, and the individual who is on this podcast today is Abraham Adeyemi, who is an award-winning writer, director, Really amazing brother, really amazing friend. Uh, he's the owner of Creative Blue Balls. He has won a few awards, which he's probably going to talk about uh, during this podcast. But uh, before I kind of carry on, Abraham, welcome to the Reveal Podcast. Um, introduce yourself. What what would you say you are? What do you say you do? Hello, everyone. Um, I am a writer, first and foremost. That's my first love. Um, I am a... Do you know, I had a term for what I described myself as, as a producer, and I've completely forgotten what it was, but it came up with it in recent weeks. But essentially, I'm, I'm a writer, director and producer. Directing was a happy accident, and producing was done because I didn't have a choice. I had to do it if I was going to get my work made. So, yeah, I'm a screenwriter primarily. I used to be a playwright. I sort of still am, but I'm not really writing plays much anymore. And most of my focus is on screen, which is where I always wanted to be of my writing anyway. So, yeah, that's me. Black boy from South London, born and raised. <laughs> so the first part of this cast is called Behind the Curtain. And that's really, that really gets into, like, your childhood really revealing what it was to be you as a child. So talk to us a little bit about your childhood and how that has enabled you to be where you are and have the success that you have had thus far. um, I grew up as an only child for many years, so I didn't have any siblings until I was 13, which really means you don't have siblings at all because they're too small. And I think by the time they were anything significant, I'd gone off to university. Um, But I, as an only child, I spent a lot of time playing PlayStation, reading books, um, and I was pretty academic. I 
I always enjoyed learning. I was never the child who had to be forced to do homework or, you know, I was never in trouble for school, in school for not doing enough work. I was in trouble for talking too much and talking back. <laughs> um, so uh, the other elements of my childhood, I guess, which contribute to where I am now is, I think going to grammar school has massively contributed to where I am. Um, mm. I probably didn't realise how much of a difference it made at the time, but it I think it instilled or harnessed a bunch of qualities, which I probably already had in terms of being hardworking and being driven and things like that. But I guess it was a desire to want to excel and being in an environment where excellence was the standard. And so, you, you know, you're always wanting to be the most excellent of the excellent people, which was something I rarely ever was. <laughs> um, but it was, I think even just having the ambition to have that kind of puts you in a good place, whether you achieve it or not. Um, and if we link it, I guess, with my writing, I think something consistent from, I would say the moment that I can identify first where I realised I loved writing was in year six when we had our sets and I was really excited to do the creative writing paper. I'm mm. sure it wasn't called creative writing, but whatever it was called. <laughs> and and I remember very vividly that I was, because, you know, you do a bunch of practice papers in advance and so you know the types of things you're going to get to write. And so it's usually a letter, um, a short story, or probably a couple of other options. And I just remember being really excited to write a letter. Don't know why I was excited to write a fictional letter to someone who was never going to receive it, but that was something that I was just really excited to do. And, and I think throughout school, I continued to really enjoy English. I always enjoyed essay-based subjects. And, yeah, I think with essay-based subjects, I found what, again, my writing kind of does, which is I just... I always felt like I could argue either side of an argument. That was something I was always really good at, which contributes to me now as a writer and a storyteller and creating characters who often have contradicting opinions and thoughts and viewpoints, both within themselves and each other. Um, but yeah, that's me. That's I think those are the things from my childhood that I identify. I can't, I can't truthfully say that there was a love or obsession with films or TV in a way mm. that I somewhat have now. Yeah. Um, even the the enjoyment of TV dramas as opposed to, you know, Nickelodeon and Trouble and all the other channels I'd have watched when I was younger. The, the love of TV drama outside of EastEnders, which I loved from childhood, um, began when I was 16. And I remember it was just after I'd done my GCSEs and you're in that, you know, that longest summer of your life where you've mm. got all this time in the world and this is the age of the internet and streaming. And, and I binge watched Heroes season one in about oh, yeah. two days yeah. and I was just totally and utterly obsessed with it. Like I loved it so much. And yeah, that that was, um, yeah, that's that's probably where the love for TV came in. Yeah, that's the childhood elements, I guess. So you mentioned about attending a grammar school and instilling this uh, excellence. How do you feel like that has filtered through to your work or even in some of your relationships? Um, with the excellence thing, I mean, I think it came... Yeah, I, I identify three separate areas where 
that excellence came from and how it's impacted the rest of my life. And I think it did come from school. I think it also came from uh, being Nigerian, whether it be the household or just what Nigerians are like. But I also feel like I always had kind of a natural drive anyway. Um, mm. But I think it's filtered into everything in my life. Like I, you know, if we're thinking of my writing and my career, I've, you know, before I wanted to be a writer, I wanted to be a lawyer. And at some point I was interested in investment banking and mm. and when I wanted to be a lawyer I wanted to be a barrister not a solicitor and I wanted to be you know I had lofty dreams of being the a QC which is the highest level of barrister you can be in the UK and mm. and when I wanted to be an investment banker it was because I it was firstly an interest in investment banks and yes mm. there's like hundreds of different roles there but that's the top of the top and <laughs> and even when I think of like my friendships for example like I'm really well known amongst my friends for getting great gifts like everyone knows that if Abe gets you a gift it's a really thoughtful gift he's really put some mm. consideration into what he wants to get you know and 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 actually, I think another place that comes from is also the fact that I support Man United, who were once an excellent team throughout <laughs> my entire childhood. And so that's always been the standard for myself. And so I do think it pours into all areas of my life. Um, and it can often be detrimental. I, I, yeah, holding yourself to such high standards can be quite difficult and taxing on you emotionally, mentally and physically. And I mm. think... You know, playing basketball, actually, that's another thing that impacted it. But I think as I've got older, the balance has got better, but it's still very much present in all areas of my life of, yeah, just wanting to be excellent. Well, we're going to touch on uh, the balance a little bit later. I quite like that. So how did you get into the industry that you're in now? Um, so I was originally studying international politics at university and when I was in at the start of the second year of my degree or actually let's, let's take a step back actually because I'd actually planned to study law and I didn't study law because I had the shock of my life on results day where I didn't get my grades for my first choice uni or even my second choice uni which was really surprising to me I, my first choice mm. was three A's and my second choice was ABB and I got BCC and I honestly couldn't believe it. And mm. and actually I remember that, yeah, we, me and all my friends had, had like played around with the idea of whether we would check our results on the UCAS system before we went into school or if we'd just find mm. out when we opened the envelope. And I decided, I'm a really impatient person, so I decided <laughs> I'd check at 6am or whatever time it was that it went online and yeah. just see what I've got. And you can't see your grades, but it will tell you whether you've got into your first choice, your second choice, or clearing. Right, right. And I saw clearing, and I just remember sitting in the dark of my room and just being like, what? And so fast forward, I ended up going to Brunel to study international politics, as mm -hmm. I mentioned. And I think that was where the beginning of the change started to happen. Um, <laughs> Brunel was quite, a, it was a really fun university. Um, and I think the best thing I probably took away from Brunel and it shows in a number of my peers and a number of the people who've left that university was there was a real drive at least amongst the black students who is who I mostly spent my time with of just believing you could kind of do anything um, mm. in these fields that weren't our traditional academic fields that our our parents is you know have kind of 
encouraged and driven us down, which actually oh wasn't God. something that I suffered from. I was always given a free reign to do whatever I wanted. But, <laughs> you know, being in a place where everyone seems so entrepreneurial and so creative and, mm-hmm. and whatnot, I, I started to, you know, just think maybe there might be something else I wanted to do. And at the start of my second year, a mm. close friend from secondary school passed away. And that was probably the big turning point where I just started to have all these kind of existential questions about what's the meaning of life and what do I want to do with my life and and what are the things that would make me happy. And mm-hmm. I just became very quickly unhappy at the direction my life was going in Um, mostly because I think there's a number of things that I want to do with my life there's a number of things I want to achieve and when we tie it back again into that whole thing of excellence and always wanting to be the best and always wanting to be at the top Mm -hmm. the big problem was that if I was to go into either law or investment banking both fields which I at that point I was pretty much guaranteed jobs in as a result Mm. of internships and placements I'd done I knew that I wouldn't have any time in my life to pursue other interests and that made me really sad I was like wait so I'm gonna wait until like I'm 40 or 50 Mm. and that's that's when I'll then try and do stuff and and actually my friends just died at 19 so there's no guarantee I'm gonna make it to 40 or 50 yeah yeah. and so I you know really cliche but I remember very vividly waking up one morning really unhappy sitting in my room in university and just saying to myself you know why are you unhappy what makes you happy writing's always made you really happy and that was it I was like cool I'm gonna drop out of university and I'm gonna it was literally as simple and straightforward as that and and I remember specifically around the time I'd met someone who was a year older than me from a similar background and he had sold a script to the BBC and I was like okay well if he can do it why can't I and I think also other aspects of helped was just as I, you know, having older friends as well who were doing various different things in the industry, you being one of them who was a journalist, it was eye-opening to know that, okay, there are, there is this kind of thing that I can do and there is a way into it. And also yeah. helped me figure out what was it that I wanted to do as a writer? Like, was it journalism? Was it, did I want to be a novelist? And what what I ended up settling on was, I really liked the idea of writing films and TV. And so yeah. I dropped yeah. out, I stopped going to lectures um, and that's kind of, that was the new journey. And I decided that I would do a part-time degree in creative writing, um, which was the decision I made for two reasons. One, because you, know, you don't need a degree to pursue this career. And I knew, however, that it would make my mum really happy if I did get a degree. And I said that I would only do it if the degree was part-time because it would afford me all the time in the world outside of my degree to keep writing, to get better at it quicker, to really kind of study my craft and also begin networking within the industry, which is what I started doing immediately. I think Mm. before I even started my degree, I met a a filmmaker who had had his first feature film made and he was really excited about my ideas and he was like, you know, I'd love to read a script. I hadn't written any scripts. And he said to me, you know, no one's going to take you seriously if you haven't written any scripts. And mm. that was, you know, my first thought was, okay, well, I've just wasted six months of 
having all this free time where I'm still in my university house but not going to lectures and I'm not actually bothered to try and write a script but right. within about two months I had written my first script as a consequence and right. yeah that's that's that was my first kind of way into it so you touched on my previous career and one of the things I did want to bring up was I remember the conversation you and I had many many years ago where I was like but are you sure like where did this come from like how how did you know it was the wrong how did you know it was the career for you um when well it may not even just be the conversation that we had but when you've heard the no from whether it's friends or family how did you push against that and was it just the belief that you knew that this was going to make you happy or was it just the fact that you didn't anything else would have been better than what you were currently doing you know what I always say because the thing is I loved my degree I really enjoyed studying politics international politics rather and I think had I gone into a career in law I would have loved it not so much investment banking, but law, I think I'd have really enjoyed. You know, I'm very argumentative. I, I love to pick things apart. No. Um, I, well, l- less... <laughs> right? And um, I think less so these days, actually, but I think it's just because I just give all that energy to my scripts instead. But I think the big thing that helped me overcome everything, there's a few different things. One is I always say to people that I always will always always bet on myself like if I decide I want to do something there is nothing in me that thinks I'm incapable of doing that thing like that's just always been my personality and I really hope that never changes um you know my friends all thought I was crazy but it didn't make a difference to me I was like okay you might think I'm crazy but I know that I want to do this I think I, the bigger battles I probably had were more internally. Like, you know, one of the key things I was worried about actually, having come from such an academic background, was that, you know, a year later, all my friends would be graduating and going into their great jobs, and I wouldn't be. I'd still be studying, I'd still be living at home, I'd still be pretty broke. And I think that was a really difficult thing for me to kind of make peace with. But, yeah, the, the own, not that I needed anyone's approval, but the two people who did matter took it well, which yeah, was yeah. my mum. Like, when I told my mum, she was like, well, I could tell there was something wrong with you. I just didn't know what it was. And she said to me, you know, very vividly, I remember her saying to me that there's nothing you could do to ever disappoint me as long as um, you make decisions that make you happy. And my uncle helped me overcome that element of being behind everyone when he was just like, well, life is a marathon, not a sprint. And so it's not about when you end up where you're trying to get to, it's just that you end up getting there. And so that was kind of all the assurance I needed to to do it. And, you know, by all means, nine years later, I'm obviously glad that I did it. But I also reflect on, you know, if I, nothing in me, made me think it would take me this long to get to where I am. Like, my best friend says it all the time. He's like, you know, Abe thought that, you know, within a year he would be here and he'd have made it and all of that. And and that's definitely true. And I'm not sure if, if I've been told, not even I'm not sure, I know certainly, if I've been told it's going to take you nine years to kind of start taking off, 
I wouldn't have done it. I'd have just carried on with my law and mm. yeah, I'd have been good. So I think it's good, but I didn't consider that. And, yeah. and that kind of unwavering confidence carried me through to a certain point. Mm. And then once it had got me as far as it could get me, I was then at a point where there's no other option. I, there's no plan B. I can't turn back. You're just going to have to keep going. Yeah, yeah. So when do you feel like you... Or is there a moment in history when you feel like you felt the fear and you and you did it anyway? Like, for me, um, as people probably would have heard on some of the other podcasts, I, I one of my favourite phrases is feel the fear and do it anyway. Because I... I'm a firm believer about not letting fear hold you back, but then also it shouldn't be, it should to a certain extent be the thing that instills in you or kind of uh, be the catalyst for you doing something. And I think especially for me, when I'm scared to do something in particular, I, I know that's the thing that I really care about. So if it scares me that much, then actually I should go against what I'm going through or feeling emotionally. Mm. Yeah, um, it's a good question. I can think of three, probably, yeah, three moments. The first one being the obvious one of deciding to drop out of my initial degree. Mm-hmm. Um, the second one, probably when I'd completed the degree, the degree, sorry, at, uh, my new degree in creative writing. And, you know, that kind of, the 18 to 24 months that followed that were really chaotic for me in that I you know within a month of finishing my degree I actually got kicked out of my family home and so I went through a very long period of homelessness although I'm always keen to explain but I don't mean I was sleeping on the streets Mm. thankfully because I have amazing friends but I was couch surfing and just a lot of instability in my life and and I think that was a moment of thought of fear and do it anyway because you know in a when you're you know 24 years old and have s- such great instability and uncertainty and you feel so far away from where you're trying to get to you're just thinking should i just go and get a job like go and get a mm-hmm. job and forget this dream and because you need to just be able to fend for yourself and look after yourself and survive and and so i think that was definitely a moment and I remember very particularly around you know so I think that was June 2015 when all of that happened and then around January February 2016 after I had so I I got a job and by December I lost that job I didn't I wasn't kept after my probation period and and I kind of just had to take a step back and you know I was very depressed which should come as no surprise Mm. and I had to take a step back and say to myself all right let's stop trying to sweep everything under the carpet and just push on like you always do and instead actually sit and dwell with your current circumstances and and try and just find peace with it in some sort of way so you can figure out a way to move forward and and in that it was also deciding do you actually want to keep writing and if you because I had barely written during that period Mm. and more importantly if I did want to keep writing how is that going to work with 
the fact that you haven't got the security of living at home anymore. What does that look like? How can you do the two things together? Because, you know, this thing isn't going to change overnight like you would hope it would. And if you want to still keep doing it, you also need to be able to live somewhere that's not couch surfing. (laughs) And... I would say the third one would be last year when I directed No More Wings, which was my first time ever directing, Mm -hmm. as someone who had never wanted to direct, who had always said they would never direct, and winning a composition which meant I had to direct. And, And I don't even think that was feel the fear and do it anyway, because... I didn't have a choice. There was no other option. The rules Mm. of the competition was you have, yeah. And I can't even say I felt the fear when I submitted because I didn't submit thinking I would win. I submitted it. I submitted my scripts like I would submit to any competition, which is you submit it and then you forget it until you find out the news. Mm. So I've heard you say that No More Wings, which is your directorial debut, the... um, like your nostalgic love letter to your youth. Yes. And obviously you've mentioned about like submitting it and and thinking about it uh, until you get like a response, as it were. And I guess talk on a bit, a little bit how how much success you've now got, you know, the fact that you've been, you've got a Tribeca Awards. I mean, I'm not going to list all of the awards. I think you should list the awards (laughs) so that I don't get them wrong. But like... (laughs) from where you were which was obviously couch surfing to now being you can actually put in your bio which you already have and I'm glad to see that you do (laughs) an award-winning director and you know you you've got these awards and these are critically acclaimed acclaimed awards like take us yeah like how what's the what's the process and you've obviously spoken about feeling it and and just sometimes not necessarily even having a choice but just carrying carry on through but what, what was the tipping point oh the tipping point um, other, other than the fact that you know you, you did go through a, a really tough time and yeah. you know there was to a certain extent as you, as you said about not having a choice but you could have chosen to not do it what was the thing that actually motivated you to say, you know what, yeah, I'm actually going to continue? And obviously mentioned about the fact that, you know, you've got so many awards because it's amazing. <laughs> the thing, thank you, the thing that motivated me to continue was just knowing I really wanted to do it and I couldn't see myself doing anything else at that point. So, yeah, 2015, 2016, which, how old was I that year? 25, I think, 24, 25. Like at that point, you know, again, when you found yourself at rock bottom and you still want to do this thing, like, I think that was, I think that was a big thing for me. I think I had a showcase in 2016 of three short plays that I'd written and that was the launch of Creative Blueboards. And the reception to all three of those pieces, all of which were very different to each yeah, other, very different. was incredible. And again, like it's moments like that which I reflect on, and I'm like that feeling of having you know 300 people across two days come and see your work and respond to it, 
and engage with it. And, you know, even to this day from that very first showcase, there's people who are still <laughs> asking me about specific, a specific play in that. And like, are you ever going to put it on again? Are you ever going to do anything with it? And, <laughs> and so, yeah, I think that feeling was encouraging and knowing you're on the, you know, you're doing the right thing. This is what you're meant to be doing. And, and I think another, I think the, the key tipping point is, you know, when, so No More Wings was made as a result of a screenwriting competition I entered called uh, Script House, which is by the organisation Soho House. And the day I discovered that I'd won that competition, I knew, I, like, I mean, I didn't know to the magnitude of where I am now what was about to happen, mm. but I knew that, okay, this is the beginning of change. And that was that was a special feeling knowing that. And the day it was announced publicly, like within minutes, I just started getting emails from people I'd never spoken to in my life, like from wow. agents, from producers. Yeah, it was very clear what was going to happen without me even having made the film that, okay, mm. people were going to pay attention to this. But even I rewind back maybe six months before that, I think it was October 2018, and a friend of mine was in London, she's American, and her name is Dream Hampton. Uh, she's a woman of many talents and who's done many things, but the most notable thing of recent time is that she was the executive producer of the R. Kelly documentary, Surviving R. Kelly. And Dream was in London and she was just saying to me, Abe, like, I don't get it. Why have you never been to LA? Like, you love traveling and this is obviously the, the home of what your career is. Why have you never been? And, and she was just adamant that I needed to come. And she was like, look, if you're in LA, I would get you right and work tomorrow. Let's, before I go back to LA, let's have a, let's go for a drink. Let's talk about it. And by the time we met up, she'd like strategized my whole trip of what was going to happen. <laughs> and, and there's me like thinking, how the hell am I going to be able to afford to be in LA for five weeks? But at the same mm. time, knowing that, and actually this is, you know, this should have been the answer to feel the fear and do it anyway. This, this is actually the biggest one of all of them. Me deciding that despite not knowing how I would survive in LA for five weeks as someone with very little money who also can't drive, which means either getting cabs everywhere or alternatively, the thing that no one in LA does, which is use public transport. <laughs> um, and I was just like, you know what? This will work out. Like, I don't know how, but it will. One of my friends said to me, she was like, you always land on your feet, like you always manage to survive. And I went to LA with about 700 pounds and a hundred pounds of that got spent before I even got on the plane because I realized I hadn't bought travel insurance. And, you know, that, but even the, that trip itself, like the changes in my life that that, that that trip evoked began from the moment I said yes to going on the trip because I had a new mindset, I had a new, motivation uh, you know in the lead up to that trip i began to write two new tv scripts because i was like well if i'm going to meet people out there i want to have new work to show for yeah, myself i'd yeah. spent i'd spent quite a few years working on theater scripts because mm. mostly because one i had very little time to be writing and so i always because i was juggling three different jobs and, and so i had to be intelligent with my time and being intelligent mm. And strategic with my time meant, you know, all I'm trying to do is make it so it's 
speak as quickly as possible and assessing my industry within the UK and observing that the people who are a few years ahead of me who have achieved the things I want to achieve, they'd all come from a theatre background. Like I only know one person who wasn't also directing, who as a screenwriter solely had achieved the things I wanted to. And I was like, well, if this is the only person I know who's managed to catch a break through screenwriting and everyone else is either a writer, director or a playwright, I'm going to have to write theatre. And so I taught myself how to write theatre. Mm-hmm. I, I developed it. I got better at it. Um, so yeah, I feel like I've jumped around so much to the point where I don't remember the question, but I feel like I've answered <laughs> things anyway. No, you have. You've, you've, you've spoken about... When it was, the original question was about feeling the fear and doing it anyway. Yeah. You talked about, you know, going to LA. You talked about, you know, the fact that you... Like, the some of the unfortunate circumstances that you've been in, but, you know, the fact that you you won that award at Soho House and what advice would you give to somebody else who is a bit like you where they were looking at the the industry and realizing okay well I don't know I don't have the contacts I don't have um even to a certain extent the resources to get to where you are now what advice would you give them you know what? I'm going to get you to ask me that question again, only because I've remembered an answer for the last question that I didn't add. <laughs> so I don't want to miss it out, which okay. is about the tipping point. Fine. Um, so which question yeah. do you want me to ask <laughs> No, no, no. So I'm going to answer the tipping point bit and then you can repeat that question after. Because okay. by the time I come back, I'll have forgotten it. I think Fine. the last tipping point was, of course, winning at Tribeca, which is something I just utterly didn't expect. And to give context to those who aren't in the film and TV world about short films and what kind of happens is, um, yeah, I think there's two routes of success with a short film. One is either your short film goes viral or the Mm. other route is that your short film does very well in festivals. Mm -hmm. Um, I think viral content, I can't think of a short film that's ever gone viral that wasn't comedy. And so by that standard, I would never personally put a short film online in hope of it getting me to where I wanted to get to, unless it was a comedy. And No More Wings is not a comedy, it has comedic elements, but it's ultimately a drama. Mm-hmm. And so we submitted to festivals, which are very expensive. The pounds have absolutely racked up the submission fees. And our strategy was to submit to Oscar and back the qualifying festivals. And this wasn't because of us thinking the film was that standard I mean we, we we thought highly of it but it wasn't like oh yeah that's what we're definitely going to get into it was more that there's hundreds and thousands of festivals and the only way to kind of filter them unless you're very experienced and have been to many festivals and know what films do well where you the only way we could filter it was by picking those and so Tribeca was the first of those festivals we submitted to the very first one we mm-hmm. missed the deadline for a few of the other big ones and so to have been firstly selected for Tribeca was a huge deal because, you know, what are the odds of getting into the very first festival that you submitted to, mm. which is also undoubtedly one of the top five festivals in the world. Um, we, of the 32 live action short films that were selected, we were the only British film that was selected. Um, I was made very aware by a lot of people in the industry how big of an achievement it was because they were like, mm. look, Tribeca doesn't pick British films. It's very, very difficult to get selected. And wow. so that was great. But what, you know, 
even so just to be selected was incredible but that huge tipping point was when I discovered that we'd won best short film which just I was so yeah there's a video online of of when I find out that I won (laughs) and I was just like I actually thought it was a prank because the Tribeca had asked us to they'd or I thought they'd sent out an email to all of the filmmakers saying that, you know, we want to do this red carpet thing and have a virtual festival and, you know, so dress up and prepare a speech. But I just thought they were going to get all of us to record a speech and then whoever won, they'd be able to, you know, present that speech. And so, you know, they tell me I've won and I'm just really confused. I'm like, sorry, what? Like, and I'm thinking, oh, are they just saying this to me so that they can get an authentic reaction and they can get an authentic speech? And as they keep talking, I'm starting to realise, oh my God, we actually have won. This is real. And and that was a moment for me when I, again, I knew like, okay, this is going to change everything forever. And it, that was, I don't know, April, so March, mm. May, June, July, August, four months later. And, you know, from that moment, I knew things were going to change. It has changed my life significantly. Like, I have my first TV series in development. Um, By the end of this year, I would anticipate probably having a lot more in development. There's Mm. a lot of things in the works at the moment. And also, by winning Tribeca, it meant that the film was both Oscar qualifying and BAFTA qualifying. So I'll be submitting to both of those um, bodies and seeing if, the film ends up getting shortlisted let's see what happens but you know life-changing moment again when that got announced the emails that started coming through were incredible um I probably missed out but by having won having won the Soho House competition originally that was how I got my agent I didn't have an agent up until that mm-hmm. point um so yeah that was another tipping point and now for your question that I've obviously forgotten but please do remind me <laughs> the, the question was around uh what advice would you give um, the advice I would give to someone coming up in the industry, it, yeah, the advice I would give is mainly for writers because the advice I would give is different for what I'd give a writer, director, or a director, or a producer. And all I was ever trying to be was a writer. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's the place where I can give advice from, which is firstly, keep writing. Um, cliche but you know you have to keep doing it and you may not feel like you're getting better but the more you do it the better you do get I have friends who read my scripts and they talk about the difference they can see whether it's when they see it whether they read it in my growth as a writer I think discipline and structure is incredibly important and routine and I don't really I have less of it now but I have less of it now because you know I, I can just switch it on like that. Like, if I need to write, you know, during lockdown, there's been days when I've written 17 or 18 pages in a day, mm-hmm. which is, you know, that was new to me. I'd never done that before. And it wasn't because of lockdown that I did that. It was more just because of, one, having the time and two, having deadlines. Mm-hmm. But me being able to do that and be able to just switch it on is as a result of years of discipline. Like, before 2015, before I was kicked out of my mum's house and all of that, I was writing 10 pages a day. Like, that was standard for me. And I could do that comfortably. And after that period, when I had to reassess my life and decide how writing fit into my life based on the new circumstances I was in, 
it was then important for me to decide, okay, that means you have to write less a day, whether it be three, de- three pages a day, three pages a week, three pa- whatever it was. But the one thing I always say to people is that as long as you've got routine and habit, you can, firstly, you know, let's say your average film script is 90 pages long. If you're writing 10 pages a day, you know in nine days you'll have a first draft. If you're writing 10 pages a week, you know you'll have a first draft in nine weeks. If you're writing 10 pages a month, you'll have a first draft in nine months. Either way, you will get to the goal of what you're trying to achieve. And that habit of constantly doing it, I think, is just so important and it's such an intentionality as well and and also it's something that keeps you going like yeah i'm i remember how proud i felt when i'd finished my first draft which was utter garbage but i was just really (laughs) proud that i had achieved this thing and and more importantly i'd written something which now other people could read and give me feedback on and tell me what's working or what isn't working so i would say discipline is key and routine Mm -hmm. i would also say be strategic um Pardon me. I spent, you know, as I've mentioned earlier, I just looked at what people were doing who were three or four years ahead of me. So, you know, figured out who the emerging screenwriters were, so to speak. I'd go on their agent websites and and look at their CVs and be like, right, this person has done the Royal Courts Writers Group. I'm going to apply to the Royal Courts Writers Group. I got into that after the third time of applying, looking at, uh, you know, people have done Soho Theatre Labs, people have done all these different schemes which I wanted to do and just seeing what did, what are the steps to get there and, and you know actually that's the advice I would give anyone in any career or field look at someone who's 10 years ahead of you of what you want to do and then just reverse engineer it and figure it out because also I think what that really helps with in an industry like this where it's so difficult to know if you're making progress and if you're succeeding is that when you achieve those little things you know okay I'm now a step further I'm now a step Mm. further because you don't have the tangible things of you know entering the job at an entry level and then getting the promotion which are things which can motivate your nine to five uh, nine to five of knowing that they're going in the right direction Mm -hmm. and I think other bits of advice would be just finding what works for you like there's a lot of things that work for me that other people think is crazy like you know I I'm not much of a planner I kind of just vomit my writing and and it means I probably have to write a lot more drafts than most people um mm-hmm. I also I'm very happy to show someone a very crappy first draft and get their feedback on it whereas other people like to you know want to really work hard on it and polish it before mm-hmm. it goes out there and and for me I think part of that is my confidence in that I know I'm a good writer and I know I'm good at what I do. And so actually I'd rather someone see it early on because it helps my process. I've got very specific Mm -hmm. people in my life who understand my writing probably better than I do. And in those very early drafts, they can see what I'm trying to say with my work and give the advice and feedback that I need to then write a very strong second draft. Um, And I think maybe the last piece of advice I'd give is being fearless in terms of mm. you know reaching out to people like I remember once upon a time I emailed the head of Channel 4 Drama and because I found his email online and I just emailed him and 
he, I got a reply from his assistant instead. And I don't remember what the response was, but the point I always give with that story is that I would email anyone. Like I'll find your email address, I'll figure out what it is, whether it be because it's visible on the website, whether it's because I find someone else's web email address in that organization and I, I figure out the formatting, like it's you yeah. know, first initial and surname at, uh, at organization.com or .co.uk. Actually, I recently discovered this tool and I don't know where it's been all my life, but it's like <laughs> a Google Chrome extension where if you just find someone on LinkedIn, you can find their email address um, with that tool. Wow. Yeah, you know, all these years I've been doing suffering, figuring out, <laughs> you know, trying 10 attempts to figure out someone's email address. But the point is, is that, yeah, I I was always fearless. Like, I'll email anyone and, and tell you who I am, what I want to do. Can I go for a, uh, you know, can I take you for a coffee to, you know, get some advice from you and, and see what I should be doing? And yeah, just be really, just believe in, in yourself. I think that's so important. That's what's pushed me and kept me going. Like, I always yeah. believe that. I could do what I said I wanted to do. And does um, representation matter? Like to the people who you were looking up to, were they of the same colour? Were they of the same background? Were they of the same kind? Were they even the same gender? Like, does representation matter? To me personally, I don't think it did. It it mm. never played in my mind. And I think I, this is something I massively credit my school to, school for, sorry, that I, you know, not seeing people like me wasn't a problem for me. It, it wasn't something that made me think, oh, because there aren't people like me in there, it means that I can't do this because I went to a school which always led us to believe that no matter who you were or what you were, through merits, you could achieve whatever you wanted to achieve, which unfortunately actually isn't true in the real world. There's many other factors that impact it. But thankfully, by the time I realised that it didn't matter, I was too old for it to have stopped me trying to get to where I was going to. Like, yeah, I remember once upon a time I had a realisation one day that there's every possibility that someone has received my script in their emails before, seen my surname, and they've instantly decided what they thought my script was about because mm-hmm. it, I, I'm a black person of African descent. And that's a problem which people with a name like Ben Smith don't have to worry about. And for so many years, it never ever even crossed my mind that that could be a problem. Um, so for me, it hasn't been a problem, but I think it does matter because I know it does discourage a lot of people and I get really excited actually for the people coming up behind me that mm. they that there are names that they can look up to, whether it be me, whether it be the many peers that I have in the industry who are excelling, mm. whether it be the people who are older than us who who you know, who are the shoulders on which we stand on. And mm. and and so I think it is important generally, but for me it didn't mm. impact me. I, I still ultimately always thought I could I could do it regardless of if I could see people who weren't like who were or weren't like me. So one of the last sections of the podcast is called Take the L. Um what does that mean to you in terms of what's the biggest L, what's the biggest lesson that you've had? Um and could you share about what that experience was and um what you learned from it? Yeah, um, 
My biggest L, without a doubt, my goodness, like, I felt like my life was over, <laughs> was last year's summer when my first full-length play, um, which was called All the Shit I Can't Say to My Dad, was on, it was due to be on stage at the Bunker Theatre, which unfortunately no longer exists. And on, you know, we had had so many hurdles with this play. Um, you know, we had, it's a one-man show and we had the first actor we wanted had, yeah, when we made the offer to him on the same day, been made an offer to do a BBC drama and we were never going to win. We don't have BBC drama money. <laughs> um, yeah, the second actor who we had after one day of rehearsals pulled out due to personal reasons. Um, we had a two-week rehearsal period, which is already a tight period. It's so small. And the actor who we'd end up casting joined us on the Thursday of week one. Mm. And for a whole host of reasons, on the day we were due to open, a couple of hours before, unfortunately, that actor was no longer able to perform in the production. And mm. for me, that was just absolutely mortifying. Like, I felt so embarrassed, like, you know, my show was due to open in two hours and all of a sudden the theatre's having to announce that the play isn't happening. Mm. I'm getting messages left, right and centre on social media, people texting me, people calling me. I'm just thinking, I don't want to talk to anyone. Why is everyone mm. trying to holler at me? And and it was something that I had worked so hard for. Like, this was mm. kind of meant to be my big moment. And that was really difficult for me. It was really difficult also because, you know, it wasn't, it, yeah, it wasn't my fault. And yet, equally, I felt a duty to protect people who mm. who were involved in the production and so kind of get in front of it and, and just take all responsibility and ownership. And, and that was really, really tough for me to deal with and just, you know, knowing that that wasn't happening anymore and... And, you know, I, I sat in my room for two days. I, I left my room once, which was to open the door for the pizza man. <laughs> um, whilst I just watched movies all day long. But mm. I think by the by the Wednesday or the Thursday, we you know, between myself and the theatre, who were absolutely incredible in supporting me, we just found solutions. And, and just to clarify as well, yeah, I don't hold the theatre responsible for what happened in nor do I actually hold the actor responsible for what happened. Like, he was working in impossible conditions through no fault of his own, as were we as as a production company. And, uh, yeah, ultimately we felt... The, the play was part of a festival of four plays, and we, mm -hmm. felt, we felt failed by the festival producer in many ways um, due to the ultimately support that we were promised we would have that we ultimately didn't end up having, which was mm. really such a massive shame. And but again, it's us at the front of it. You know, it's, it's you know, it's it's my name that everyone sees. It's my name that everyone's coming for. But okay. the way I, I you know, I, the way I dealt with it, slash the people around me was, yeah, you know, I, I was showered with a lot of love and support. And ultimately, we just decided to make the most of it and okay. I think I don't think I've fully reconciled with it yet like it definitely still hurts me and and mm. for a long time it, it still impacted us because 
it had so what we ended up doing as you would be aware of of course is we ended up having um rehearsed readings instead so we had guest actors who would do a reading of the play and Mm. actually the readings were incredibly well received and those readings as well as the script itself is actually been the reason why a lot of the things in my life have happened in the last year a lot of the positive things like I I was writing a script for Channel 4 and that was a direct correlation of having had that script but you know there were massive financial implications we made a massive financial loss from that which ultimately I had to personally pay for it. You know, we're talking four figures. And that was very, very painful because dealing with an L is hard and it's harder when it's not your fault and you're the one who has to pay financially when already you you haven't got much money. You're grinding and having to pay for things left, right and centre, which you, you you wouldn't have had to if things had gone right. And the person who you hold responsible for it, just completely washing their hands of it and not, you know, doing anything. But, mm-hmm. you know, I, a year on, I can look back on it and be like, well, it still provided many great things. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and I, yeah, I'm not sure what the lesson is that I take from it because there's, I, yeah, I think the biggest lesson actually I take from it is that I should have just assessed the opportunity properly that we were given and assessed the person who brought it. And as some, I believe I have quite a good judge of character, but I think on that occasion, I really failed myself in that I didn't assess this person enough. And I just kind of leapt at the opportunity that I was being given, which was mm. to have a full-length play on something that I'd never had. And, and instead, I should have been like, you know what? These conditions which I'm being presented, these this opportunity in, isn't good enough because there were other people who dropped out of this who had the same opportunity I was given but then they decided they were no longer going to do it because they had sussed out that things weren't going right with this person and I didn't know Mm. at the time it would be in the aftermath when things would happen to me and I would go on to meet these people and they said to me yeah we dropped out because we realised that this was kind of not what we were being promised. But mm. my, yeah, it was a detriment of what my character and my nature is, which is that even when things weren't going right, I'll just keep pushing on and try and make it work. So, yeah, that was the L. And, you know, I, I'm sure going, you know, in anything I've done since, I really have scrutinised whether I wanted to take the opportunity and whether I felt that the person or the people or the organisation who I'm going to work with were a good fit for my project. So talk to us about what it means to be successful for you. What it means to be successful? Being successful for me is not worrying about money through something that makes me happy and being able to provide for my family as well as people like me. And when I say people like me, I mean... I mean, yeah, there's various versions of that, whether it be black people, whether it be more specifically Nigerian people, whether it be people from South London, whether it be people from a working class background. But to be able to provide opportunities for those people and ultimately have a legacy that lives beyond me, I think that's what success is for me. I think it's also being able to enrich the lives of those around me but outside of all of that I think also success to me yeah it can't be success unless 
I'm also able to be the person that my loved ones need me to be, whether that be my friends or my family or anyone who I'm a significant part of their life. It's mm-hmm. important for me to always be able to to show up and deliver. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. all of the other side of success, which ties into my career, isn't worth it if it's at a sacrifice of being able to be there for those people who matter to me. So what's next for you? What's next for me? Um, also, actually, before I answer that, I think success is also being at the top of my field as well, which I think is probably mm. obvious from everything I've said anyway. Like, you know, I definitely <laughs> do aspire to, to yeah, there's, I think there's different types of writers and, and you know, and there's a, and different types of writers also have a purpose. Like, you need the writers who are just going to write episodes on soaps. You need writers who are going to mm. write episodes of other people's shows or ideas and stuff like that. But for me, my aspirations and ambitions are ultimately to, you know, write my own shows, write my own films. And also you know, win a kind of the top awards as well. Like that's definitely yeah. something I aspire to. And as for what's next, um, yeah, everyone's been asking that. And right now I'm just writing a lot, whether it be things that have been commissioned. So mm-hmm. I've got a TV series that's in development with ITV Studios. Um, I spent the first half of this year writing a, a TV pilot for Channel 4, which is now being shopped around to a number of production companies. And I'm quite excited and confident about mm. what that's going to lead to. It's also it's already got a lot of interest, so we'll mm. see where it ends up. And I'm also shopping around some of my film ideas as well. Um, and in between all of that, I'm also working in writers' rooms for TV series, which are in various stages of development, whether it be things that haven't been commissioned or greenlit yet, and so on and so forth. And so... I don't know what's next in terms of what people will be able to see because, you know, in comparison to short films, TV and film takes a very long time. And, you know, whilst thankfully I'm now a full-time writer and director and I'm able to survive and sustain off of my career, you know, what isn't clear is when anybody will see any work. But Mm. I think realistically, the next thing that probably will be seen from me actually probably won't be my own writing. Um, As a company, our next step uh, is actually, you know, something I've I've continued to try and do with Creative Blue Balls is, yeah, I found myself just trying to replicate the things that have worked for me for other writers because Mm -hmm. I I said something to someone this week, which is that I, to all the writers I meet, I say to them that I want them, I want their success to take half as long as it took for me. If I can equip people with the tools and the knowledge and and the things that have worked for me and it hopefully works for them, if they've got the talent, the rest will happen. Mm-hmm. Like there's a lot of things I've mm-hmm. had to figure out for myself, which I'm just happy to tell people. Yeah, um, yeah. And as a company, over the next 18 months, we're planning to produce four short films, none of which will be written or directed by me. Yeah. And it's we're looking for we've already identified some writers that we want to work with already but ultimately what we're doing is you know creative blue balls its purpose is to support emerging and talented writers and nurture Mm -hmm. them and give them a platform to show their talent and yeah i don't think most writers have a natural ability to produce in the way that i did and Mm -hmm. part of 
part of my success comes from my go-getter attitude, my do it yourself and just make it happen. But you shouldn't have to do that. And for me, if, as long as you've got the ability and talent to write and and I feel like that should be enough. And what we're trying to do is facilitate it so that that is enough for writers. And yeah, I've been writing for years, but it was directing, which, you know, a script that I wrote, which was what ended up blowing the door open for me in my career. And so now with the right, you know, we're looking for writers who have never wanted to direct but we see something in their writing and their voice mm. and their ability, which leads us to believe that they are capable of directing. Because, mm. you know, for this whole time that I've been writing, everybody's tried to convince me to direct. And like I said, I never wanted to do it. <laughs> and I can look at two reasons as to why it was just something that was always a no for me. And it was because I had two options, which if I wanted to do it, I either had to go to film school or I had to self-teach. Going to film school was never an option because I couldn't afford it. And self-teaching was never an option because I didn't have the time to teach myself. I didn't, you know, I just, yeah, I've seen my peers who have taught themselves how to direct and they've had to learn a lot and study a lot. And I learned how to direct in the space of 10 weeks, but it was also because we had a lot of money to make the film. We were given $25,000 to make that film. And so whereas most of my filmmaker peers are jacks of all trades in terms of they could do most jobs on a set to a competent level themselves. They could edit their own films and stuff like that. Mm. I can't do any of those things. I can write. I can I can explain my vision to people very well. And I can draw performances from actors. Those are my three key things that I can do, which enable me. And I, I believe that also, those are the only things you need as a director and everything else is a bonus. But the only reason why I could make a short film that's been so successful with those three main qualities, which I think are the only qualities you need, are because I had so much support. Mm. And the reason why we had so much support is because we could afford to have that support. So we could afford yeah. to pay an excellent cinematographer. Yeah, yeah, we could afford to just have an excellent crew. And and also I was given support in terms of mentoring, whether it be my friends who were directors, whether it be because mm. I went on set to, to shadow Sam Mendes, who's an Oscar and BAFTA winning uh, filmmaker. Mm. And so with the filmmakers who we're gonna ultimately commission and produce short films of theirs, it's gonna be the same thing. We're gonna I'm I'm gonna support them in getting them to be able to be on a set and confidently direct on their own. So hopefully in two or three years we'll be talking about three or four filmmakers who are now in the same position I'm currently in where they've where they're able to be a full time filmmaker as a result of their yeah. short films. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I would say that's what's next. So Revelations, which is a quick fire round. Um, you have to basically say the first thing that comes into your head. So, for example, water. Uh, drink. Wow. So, simple as that. I, by the way, when I saw this in the email, I got really excited about this. <laughs> this is the bit I was most excited for. It just seemed really fun. Drink was a crap answer as well, so hopefully I'll, go, I'll have better answers. <laughs> Time I wake up. 6 a.m. Every day. At the moment, it's 6.30, but yeah, wow. every day, even on the weekend, and, and it, it happens naturally. Okay. Um, yeah. Better <laughs> you than me. Usual breakfast. Porridge or a smoothie at 1.30pm. Most played song. Ooh. 
Oh, I... Uh, so the first song that came to my mind, I don't know if it's still my most played, but at one point it was Michael Jackson, Human Nature. Mm-hmm. Now it's probably actually Rick Ross, Drake and Chrisette Michelle, um, Aston Martin Music, the extended version. Cool. Last TV show you watched? The Morning Show on Apple TV, and it's amazing. Everyone should watch it. The trailer is very misleading. Not that I've ever seen it, but but from what I've been told, the trailer is very misleading, and it leads you to believe that I don't know. It's not, and it's like it just doesn't seem like an interesting show, and it's. And it probably appears like a comedy, especially because all the lead actors are comedies, um, comedians, sorry, or comedic actors. It's absolutely brilliant. Highly recommend it. Everyone should watch it. Favourite book? Oh, can I say more than one? Favourite book? Oh, wow. Cool. Energy. Um, oh, okay. Ciari Jones and American Marriage. Current food craving? Jam donuts. I went to Tesco this morning and to do my shopping and I picked up a bag of jam donuts and I was really proud of myself because I left them there and didn't take them with me. Oh, okay, no, that's definitely good. That's definitely good. Um, And last one, my safe place or safe space. My safe space, the cinema. Oh, thank you so much, Abe. Uh, before we go, how can people get in contact with you? Uh, is there any particular social media accounts that we you want to give a shout out to or any particular email addresses or anything? Yeah, yeah sure. Firstly, thank you for having me. Really enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, social media is the same on everything, which is Abe is legend. I'm pretty active on Twitter and Instagram. I try to be less so these days because I've got work to do and I should be pouring all my thoughts into my scripts, not Twitter, <laughs> aka the Aoife. And if people want to get in touch with me, hit me up on my emails, um, which is abe at creativeblueballs.com. And actually, if, if, you, if it's like a work inquiry, if you want advice, anything like that, please don't DM me, just email me. I I don't, like, anytime anyone DMs me asking me things, I'm just like, can you email me instead? Because my email's in all of my bios, but also I just can't be bothered to be replying in my DMs. I'd rather just sit on my laptop in an email. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's that's me. Feel free to contact me. I'm always happy to answer any questions, give advice, and I tend to write quite lengthy emails of advice because I like to just try and... Yeah, I, I always say to people that... I just want everyone to win. Like, there's enough space for all of us. I'm competitive, but I also think I'm the best. And so in that regard, I don't, I'm not someone who would ever be worried and be like, oh, this person could be my competition because, you know, also we've all got our own stories to tell and my stories are not your stories. Um, and if you want to follow the journey of either No More Wings or my company, Creative Blue Balls, we are on Instagram. Uh, Creative Blue Balls is the Instagram no more wings film i believe is the instagram for the film as well Fabulous. thank you so much Abe. thank you for having me thank you for listening please don't forget to share subscribe 
and connect with us on social media at The Reveal Pod.